read. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but, not, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the, tr with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For, in, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall f know fully, even as, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. <laughs> awesome job, Reed. Awesome. Whose, whose kid is that? It's amazing. Um, well, we are looking at um, 1 Corinthians 13, which may be the most famous chapter in the whole Bible. It's, um, it's so well-known. It's so beloved. And you, and you read it, especially when you hear it read with such an amazing, sweet uh, voice as, um, that was just read. You, you read these words, and it just feels so sweet. It's just, uh, it's like... It's like French toast with, with uh, whipped cream on it. It's just, it's, it's hot, you know, it's warm and it makes you feel cozy and it goes down smooth. And 1 Corinthians 13, it, it is uh, syrupy and sweet, but we've also been trying to remind you, if you've been with us over the past number of weeks as we've been looking at this, is that this chapter by itself, extracted from the rest of the letter, it is, it is syrupy and sweet. But when you put it in the context of what's going on with what is what Paul is actually writing, he's actually writing these words as a confrontation. He, he's, he's challenging this church because they were influential and they were successful and they were important and they were awesome, but they were not loving. And so Paul writes these words not as like the syrupy sweet poem, but as a way to say, hey, if you don't love each other, if you're not loving, it doesn't matter if you have all this other stuff. If you don't have love, you have missed the point of what it means to be a human being, much less what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we've been looking at this for maybe the past six, seven weeks or so, and here we come to what we're going to, this will be our last, our last uh, little dip into these waters, and we're going to look at what one commentator said is the grand uh, climax of this whole chapter, which you find in verse 7. This is, this is like, you know, when you go to a fireworks show, Fourth of July show, and it's like the grand finale at the end where they're like, okay, we're just going to light off everything that we have left. Just, just, just this insane, just throwing everything at it. That's verse 7. I mean, just look at Paul. He just piles up all of this language. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. So uh, there's a lot there, and we're not going to try to uh, unpack all of that. I just want to look at the first two phrases. 
What does it mean for love to bear all things? And what does it mean for love to believe all things? So that's all we'll do. Final, final shot at 1 Corinthians 13. What does it mean for love to bear all things? What does it mean for love to believe all things? First, uh, what does Paul mean when he says love bears all things? Well, the word uh, bear there has to do with support, with, um, with uh, coming up under, with, with, with um, having, having someone's burden be put onto you. That's what it means to bear something, to bear all things. Um, picture, I, I, I heard a pastor use this as an example, and it was a helpful image to just kind of capture this idea. Picture two people trying to move a sofa, and it's big, and it's heavy, and it's awkward, and, and they're struggling moving this sofa from point A to point B. And so to bear that with them means that you come alongside of them. You come up underneath it, and you, you lift it off of their hands. You lift it off of their shoulders or wherever it is. You, you let their burden get onto you. That's the idea. That's what love is. Love is about carrying, bearing, letting other people's burdens get onto you, letting the weight of their stuff get onto you, which sounds noble and it sounds heroic. But here's the point I really want to emphasize is that this means that love is always costly. I mean, think about it. If, if they're not going to, if you're not going to help them move this couch, what happens? Just play the scenario out. They can't do it themselves, so they either drop the sofa and potentially damages it or damages the floor, or they can't move it. They can't do what they want to do. They can't get from point A to point B. But for you to help, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to get up off of the couch and stop watching TikTok videos, and you're going to have to uh, strain your muscles. You might pull your back out. It might cause you to have, you know, break out and sweat, which means you're going to have to shower again before you go to the next thing about your day. It's going to cost you time. The point is, is that to bear other people's burdens, to love someone, it, 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 it's costly. It costs you time. It costs you effort. It costs you, uh, it costs you sweat. And so here's the point. The point is, is that if there's a need, someone has to bear the burden. If you don't. If you choose to preserve your life, hold on to your comfort, I will not be inconvenienced right now. TikTok is more important. Then the burden remains with those two people trying to move the couch. They're going to be burdened. But their burden gets lifted if you take it on yourself. Another way to think about it is if you hold on to your life, your convenience, your, uh, the integrity of your back, if, if you hold on to that, if you choose life, death gets passed onto them. They don't move the couch or they break the couch or whatever. But if you're willing to die, if you're willing to sacrifice those things, then life gets passed onto them. It's just how the world works. That's how, that's how reality is structured. You know, I'm sure many people in this room um, have been impacted by the death of Tim Keller. This was, you know, this happened last week. Famous author, pastor, very important to uh, many of us in this church, very important to this church, and uh, you know, died last week, uh, age 72. And uh, if you've heard any of his stuff, um, he makes this point often throughout his, uh, you know, that he's made throughout his ministry. And he's used this as an example. He says, think, think about parenting. If you have a child 
And um, in order for this child to grow up, if they're going to have a shot at being healthy and being mature, then that is going to require an enormous amount of sacrifice on behalf of the parents, or at least one of the parents. It's going to, co- it's going to cost uh, you know, tons of money, uh, cost tons of sleep, uh, tons of time. Somebody's career you know, has the chance for that to be impacted. And you know if you have kids, just having kids is just one sacrifice after the other. And so if you have a parent, if you have a, uh, a situation where the parent says, I, I will not be inconvenienced. I want to have a child. I love children. That's great. Super fun, but I'm not going to let this person impact my life, and I'm going to not let this child impact my career. I'm not going to let this child impact my sleep or impact my budget or impact my schedule. A parent can do that, and parents do do that. They say, I will choose my life, and I will not be burdened. Well, guess where the burden goes then? The burden goes to the child, and then the child grows up in a way that is uh, uh, neglected, and they're going to have dis- you know, all their own dysfunctions and, and uh, b- different ways that they'll be broken as a result of that. You hold on to life, death gets passed on to the child. And I've been, um, I've been, doing mini- I've been an ordained pastoral ministry for maybe f- almost 15 years now, coming up on 15 years. And over the course of the past 15 years, I mean, there's been countless conversations that I've had with people, countless relationships where... where, where I've gotten to know people, and they've given me the privilege of just getting to know their story, and, you, and, and, and they, they are, um, tell you these sad stories of their parents that were there. They paid the bills. I mean, they provided fi- financially for them, but never really made time for them, never really showed up for their games, never really were curious about their hearts, and so now they've, they're acting out in really unhealthy or dysfunctional ways, and in many ways their life is a mess. Because the parent held onto their life and death passed onto the kid, as opposed to the the parent being willing to die, the parent being willing to sacrifice to suffer. I will be inconvenienced. I'll carry the burden so that life can be passed onto you. That's how love works. That's how life works. And and Tim Keller uses another example. He says, let's say that you have a friend, or maybe even just somebody that you know, that is going through a really hard season and they're struggling and wrestling with a lot of things and their life is hard right now. And you know when they're calling you or when they're texting you or when they show up, everything in you wants to avoid it because it's draining and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward because their tears are uncomfortable and you don't know what to say. You can't fix their problems. It's going to take a whole bunch of your time to just sit there and listen to them. And so you'd rather avoid it. And the reason why it feels draining to you is because it is. But this is the point. If you refuse to be drained, if you, if you choose to hold on to your life, I will not be burdened by this person. Well, the burden remains with them. And they're lonely and they're hurting and they're, they're dealing with this on their own. But if you're willing to bear that, if you're willing to be drained and to give up your time and to sit with them and enter into the awkwardness of, I don't really know what to say, but I'll listen to you and I'll be with you and I'll weep with you and I'll pray with you. It's going to take time. If you're, if you're willing to be drained, then guess what happens? Life gets passed on to the other person and they feel seen and they feel validated and they feel encouraged and they feel supported. That's what love, love bears, all things. And in fact, um, 
Lewis Meads, who we've referred to often in this series as, as, we've, looked at every, as we've looked at this chapter, because he wrote a whole book over this chapter, here's what he says. He says, carrying things is love's full-time job. I love that. Love has a, love's full-time job, the job description of love is to carry things. That's what love does. Paul, Paul writes in a different chapter, a different letter, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he writes this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? It's, it's to love. And so he's basically saying, when you love, what you are doing is you're bearing. As you bear other people's burdens, you're loving them. This is what love is. Now, we have this idealistic notion, I think, kind of in our modern cultural moment, this romantic ideal that love is easy, that love is just this amazing, you're skipping through the forest of dandelions and butterflies and ice cream and Pop-Tarts growing on the trees, and it's just this amazing, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. But love is not easy. Love all, if you're going to love anything or anybody, it's always going to entail cost, sacrifice, burden bearing. It's going to hurt. If you're going to choose to love your spouse, if you're going to choose to love your kids, if, you're gonna, if you choose to love your church or your neighborhood or your coworkers, if you take that disposition, I will love you just signed up for burden. You just signed up for something to cost you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you something. I mean, just think, about, just think about the cross. The Bible says that the cross of Jesus, is, it is the demonstration of God's love. The way that God displays to the universe that he loves you is he is on a cross. And you know what he's doing on the cross? He's bearing Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. First Peter says that on the cross, uh, Jesus is bearing our sins in his body. In other words, it, it wasn't easy for God to love us. It wasn't easy for God to love me. It cost him a lot. So if we're going to be people that love, we're signing up for burden. And so the question is, for you, are you willing to be drained? Are you willing to be burdened for others? That, that's the way of love. That's what love is. Love bears all things. But there's more. Uh, love doesn't just bear all things. Uh, love also believes all things. And so let's look at that next. What, what does that mean? Because if you think about it, the first time you read that, the first time you hear that, you think, that's dumb. Why would love believe all things? That you, you, that's, you know, you're, that you're setting yourself up to be totally taken advantage of. Makes me think of this uh, story that took place about a year ago. My wife, Catherine, and I, we went out to dinner at the beauty shop right over here at Cooper Young and had an amazing dinner. 
we leave, and as we're walking to our car, we get approached by this woman who uh, tells us the story how uh, she's stranded in Memphis. She needs to get back to Arkansas where she lives. She's opening up her, her uh, job in the morning, and she needs some money to help uh, catch the bus to get out there. And you've been approached by people like this a million times, just like I have. And so you know you're being conned in these moments. You, you know this is all not real. And yet there was something about her story that sounded really genuine, sounded different. And so Catherine kind of, Catherine and I, we kind of look at each other and we say, oh, let's help this person out. I mean, I don't know if this story is real or not. It sounds real, but okay, let's just do it. So we give her some money, help her get to, back to Arkansas. And, uh, you know, we believed her because, look, love believes all things. And we went home feeling very great about ourselves. And uh, look how loving we are. And, um, you know, that was that. About four or five months later, uh, I'm eating at Maciel's just down the street, right here on Cooper, come out and see the same woman. And she approaches me, starts to talk to me as if she's never seen me before, never met me before. And she gives me the same exact spiel, word for word. And I begin to realize, okay, I totally got hustled. We totally, we got duped. We believed her. And so you hear Paul say, well, love believes all things. Does, does he, is that what he, he just means you're supposed to be gullible? You just go through, naive, you go through life naive, just believe. I mean, if that's what you do, you're totally going to be taken advantage of. It's not what he means. Here's what he means. He, he's referring to what we believe about each other. And what he means is that what we believe about each other is we believe the best about each other. We believe that every single person that you interact with is a neighbor, and that neighbors are people with needs. And you don't disparage them than that reality, but uh, you recognize that reality. And uh, in other words, you give people the benefit of the doubt. You don't assume this cynical, skeptical posture, nor do you assume this gullible, naive, believe in everything, but you assume the best in people. And you think, okay, well, that still feels dangerous. Let me, um, let me give you another story that may kind of help, help us out here. Stephen Covey tells this story in his book, uh, famous book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he tells the story of one morning when he's getting on the subway in New York City. And this was you know, years ago, pre-cell phone. And so everybody on their morning commute to work, is they're reading the newspaper. And everybody's kind of quietly making their way to work. And he says that they get to one stop, and there's this man with two or three young kids who gets onto the, um, onto the subway uh, at that stop. And the kids are being loud and crazy and disruptive and kind of bothering everybody. And the, and the dad just sits there um, with his eyes closed. And Stephen Covey initially gets kind of irritated by this. I'm like, oh my goodness, okay, there's um, other people here. What kind of a dad just sits there and lets their kids just be this wild and rambunctious, annoying everybody else? And he, he, he looks around and he begins to realize everybody else in the little subway cart uh, is feeling just as irritated, silently judging this dad for doing nothing and letting their kids, kids just be out of control. So eventually he can't, like, take it anymore and leans over to the guy and says, excuse me, sir, um, you may really need to kind of, re- like, rein your kids in. They're, they're being really disruptive. And he says, he tells, as he's telling this story in his book, that this man kind of snaps 
back to reality and says, oh my goodness, you're right, I'm so sorry. We just came back from the hospital where their mother died and I don't really know how to process this moment and I'm guessing they don't really know how to process this moment either. And Stephen Covey, you know, with this new information is like, oh my word, I'm the worst human being in the world. And he just has this shame bomb blow up inside of him. And you may come to his defense and realize that he didn't know. How was he supposed to know? How do you know in that moment? But that's his point. His point is you don't know. And what kindness looks like, what love looks like, is not to just immediately jump to irritation and judgment and anger, but to say, I don't know what this, what this person is going through. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give them grace in this moment. That's what love is. It assumes this posture of, I don't know. And so I'm going to assume the best. There was this, it reminds me of this sign that I... I really can't remember where I first saw it. I don't know if it's on the internet or if it was on, a, uh, on the street somewhere, but the sign said something like, be kind because you don't know the burdens people are carrying. Be kind to people because you, you don't know what they're going through. And that's just kind of always stuck with me because, you know, you have these moments where you have the waiter or the waitress that's like a total tool and they're being so like snippy and short with you and you're like, what is this person's problem? And everything in us is like, this guy's the worst or this person's the worst. And what believing all things might mean is to say, okay, we don't, who knows what day that person just had? Who knows what their life is like? We can give them grace. Or you look at the, um, you look at the mugshot that gets posted on the news every single day, somebody just committed this crime. And love begins to realize, okay, I don't know what their life actually looks like and what led that person to make that decision today. And it was wrong, it was illegal. I'm not, I'm not excusing them for it, but when you begin to have compassion for their life and you believe, okay, I, I don't know what their life actually looks like, it, it moves you from contempt to compassion. That's kind of the idea, this idea of um, I will believe, um, love is going to lead me to believe the best about them in this moment. Not excusing them, but being compassionate towards them. I'll give you one more example of this. There's an amazing little book called um, Low Anthropology that was just uh, written maybe last year, I can't really remember, it was by this guy named David Zoll. Z-A-H-L, highly recommended, amazing, short, easy, very, very easy to read. But he tells the story in that book of a time when, before he was married and had kids, he was living by himself in this apartment, and there was this woman who was maybe 10 years older than him, single woman, who moved into the apartment above him. And she would blast her music loud and late into the evening. And so he, a number of days later, uh, and this goes on for days, and he, he bumps into her in the lobby and summons the courage to go up and talk to her and ask her to turn it down. And he you know, makes jokes, and he's like, hey, I think we can all agree that maybe midnight is a great kind of cutoff point, good compromise, let other people sleep. You get to listen to your music up to a, you know, a certain point. Let's just do that. And he says that she looks at him um, blankly, says nothing, and then walks away from him. And then that night, cranks it up even louder and later. And so this goes on and on for, for months. 
and uh, he, he approaches her two more times in the lobby asking her to turn it down. He talks to the landlord asking them to get involved, and eventually he just has to find another place to live. He moves out because of the situation. And as he's thinking about this story, he says, okay, the, o- the only two options were that she's pathological or she's intentionally doing this to be mean. Those are the only way to explain this behavior. Either she's crazy or she's evil. And he said, when I did that, when, when I began to realize this is what I was doing with her, I'm putting her in this category that is other. She's either crazy or she's evil, which is different from me and people like me. And so he began to be convicted by what he was, how he was processing this story, and he tried to do the 1 Corinthians 13 thing. He said, okay, let me go back and try to believe all things about her. What would that look like? He starts doing this hard, kind of imaginative, empathetic work, and, he's, and he, this is what he writes in his book. He says this, quote, maybe she was still reeling from that bad relationship, and she found the silence at night lonely. Maybe those were the hours when she couldn't stand to hear herself think. Maybe there were substances involved. Maybe she took one look at me, and I reminded her of people that she'd been deferring to her whole life, and she could no longer stand it. None of these explanations would have made me want to stay in the building, but they certainly would have mitigated my contempt. That's this idea that we need to offer one another and to our neighbors is believing all things about them. And I'll say this. We'll go one step deeper here. We don't need to just offer that to each other. We also need to receive this from each other. It's just as important for you to believe all things about me and for me to believe all things about you and to give that to each other. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you're anything like me, but it is very easy for toxic shame to just get turned up to threat level midnight uh, inside of your own soul, where you see that thing, you do that thing, you fail in the same way that you failed a million times, and that voice comes in, and you know that voice well. In fact, we're going to talk about this voice a lot more next week. But that voice comes in and says, you are such an idiot. What is wrong with you? Don't you know how disgusting, how disgusted God is with you? You know how everything you do is worthless? That voice. And when that voice comes in, that's when we need each other to tell us the truth about ourselves. To be able to look at somebody and say to them, okay, let me, let me believe what is actually true about you because right now you're forgetting it. What is actually true about you is that there is no, for, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has taken our sin and our shame and our guilt, and he's thrown it as far as the east is from the west, which means it's evaporated. He has given you the name Beloved. That's your name. That's who you are. We need to say that, give that to each other because we forget it. We don't believe it about ourselves, so we need other people to love us and believe all things for us. You know, I included this uh, quote at the beginning of your bulletin by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's talking about uh, life in the church, life in Christian community. 
And he writes this. I think it's so helpful. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. I love that idea. The Christ in your own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of your brother. You can tell, you know, here's what that means. You can tell yourself all day long, I'm going to be okay. God loves me. And it can just feel like just a volume level one just bouncing off of just this shame bomb inside of you. But when you have somebody else come into your life and say the same exact thing, it feels so much stronger, so much weightier because the Christ in your own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of your brother. This is why, one of the reasons why, uh, remind is one of the three main things that we do as a church. Why do we get together with each other and watch the Goonies and run races with each other and have breakfast together? Why do we do these things? Is it because it's fun? Yes, super fun. Is it because y'all are a fun group of people to spend time with? Yes, absolutely. Ultimately, why we do these things is because we need to remind one another of his love for us because we forget it. I need you to be able to look at me and say, Matt, even when you're going through that hard season, and it feels like God has left you. Let me speak the truth to you. He hasn't. He is with you. He loves you. I need that from you. And you need that from me. And we need that from each other. That's why we remind one another. We believe all things for each other. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to be a part of a community that actually begins to love each other. Now, final thought and then I'm done. What, what do we, where do we go from here? What do we do with this? Uh, I, I want to conclude with, with uh, one more random story. I, I recently reread this book by Philip Yancey called uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. It was published in the mid-90s. I read it when I was a, a new Christian in high school. Uh, it's kind of this, it's a pop evangelical kind of a book, and I don't really know why I reread it recently, but it was delightful. I'm glad I did. And uh, at the end of this book, he tells the story of when he's in the Chicago airport, and he's about to uh, go to this, uh, fly to this Christian conference that he was attending. And his flight gets delayed for five hours. And he's already, you know, it's already late in the day. They just got delayed five more hours. And he's like now super irritable and grumpy. And he says he was also working on this writing project. He was writing a book at the time called Disappointment with God. And so he's just swimming in this headspace of unanswered prayers and suffering and struggling and where is God and all of this stuff. And so that's just where his head is. And now he's delayed five hours and he's just in this hard space. And he happens to strike up this conversation with this older woman who's, who's also on the same flight, also going to the same Christian conference, also now delayed. And they just kind of start passing the time talking to each other, hanging out with each other. And they start talking about these really heavy, you know, subjects like 
the challenges of childhood and their disappointments with the church and their questions of doubt and unanswered uh, prayers and uh, hard questions they don't know how to answer in their own faith. And he says he just kind of unloads. He's just got all this been, you know, uh, piled up stuff inside of him, and he just kind of uh, just is kind of just unloading on her. You, you know, you've, you've been that person. Maybe you've been around that person who just sprays you with words for a long time as she sits there and patiently listens. And after a long time of him just venting, he says she stops and looks at him and asks him a question that has haunted him ever since. She looks at him and says, Philip, have you ever just let God love you? And he said that question kind of took him aback, and it's, and it's stayed with him ever since because that question exposed this gaping hole inside of his uh, spirituality. Here's this person who's incredibly busy. He's religiously busy. He's uh, a well-known Christian author. He's writing. He's, he's doing stuff for the kingdom. He's... Uh, thinking and processing really deep theological realities, and yet he kind of missed something pretty simple. He's never just paused and relished in the reality that the God of the universe actually loves him. I bring that story up because we're finishing out 1 Corinthians 13 today, and, you know, we've looked at, we've looked at this chapter, and it's it is so rich and it's so profound. It's this whole thing of, okay, what does it look like for us to be people who love when love is patient and love is kind and love doesn't envy or boast and it's not rude and it doesn't insist on its own way and it's not resentful? All of these incredibly important things. And we've tried to, every single week, point you back to Jesus because what we believe is that you can't give away what you don't have. You can't be someone who loves unless you are someone who is loved. And so what I want to do as we finish out this time in this chapter is leave you with the same question that that uh, older woman left Philip Yancey. Do you ever just let God love you? And what I mean by that is, is do you ever name and come to grips with the painful realities about who you actually are and say, okay, here's who I am uh, I have this deep need for validation. I can be incredibly petty. I have a hair trigger temper. You name all the things, your greed, your addictions, your lust, and then you relish in the fact that God loves you still. Here you are as you actually are, and that doesn't change his love for you that he moves towards you in such a way where he is willing to bear it all. He's willing to die, take death on himself so that life can get passed to you. Validation, forgiveness, justification, freedom, life. He bears it all for you. Do you ever just pause and revel in that reality? If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, here's what I want to leave you with. The God of the universe loves you. 
And I pray and hope that you would receive that and drink that in in such a way where it might actually transform you and liberate you into being someone who does all this stuff, who loves. That's the invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, um, we're confronted with that question because I think if we're honest, I think we'd say the answer is no. We don't really trust that you love us, that you care about us. We don't really trust that you're good or that you really want anything to do with us. Maybe we believe that you love us in a um, superficial way. But Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the gospel. Give us eyes to see that the cross itself proclaims your love for us and that is so costly, that is so uh, shocking, it's scandalous. And I pray that that would move us, liberate us, where we might be delighted to answer yes to that question. Help us to revel in the fact that you love us and help us to be people that begin to love others with the overflow of that love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.